Good morning. Everyone feeling good? Like it's spring this morning? Weather's looking nice. Crescente Ballas III preached on the central side this week. I heard he did a great job. Great job, Chris. Megan and I went over to the North Shore. We had a great time with the shore. Where's the shore? Okay, just maybe we need to open the curtains and let some light in this morning or something. Just a little bit, a little energy come on in. Maybe somebody could open them on up. That's what I'm talking about. Let's get moving around. Let's get fired up. There we go. Uh, what are those people doing out there? Maybe that's why we had the curtains closed. It all makes sense. All has been revealed. Anyway, Megan and I and our family take a trip to the U.S. in three weeks. Our, our global fellowship has a meeting. We're split into 32 different regional families. The spa region is one of those. And so there's a meeting in San Diego and there's, you know, discussion and, and lessons about how to move our, our global church forward. So we'll be there for that meeting for a few days and also see Megan's family and my family as well. And that'll be a great time for us to really connect and have fellowship and come back really inspired to continue to lead the church here in Auckland, New Zealand. That'll be great. But we just got an email also asking us to, to do a lesson at this thing, Megan and I. <laughs> Yeah, teach of the haka, just me up there. I don't, I don't think so. That would be disrespectful. <laughs> that would represent our nation well. But so I, I, I say that to say we're we're definitely honored. But please pray for us. <laughs> it's a bit nervous to to talk to this group here, and so. But we are definitely excited, and it's going to be a great time. There's also a Hope Worldwide meeting, which Duncan and Mary will attend, and they'll come back inspired about how to continue the great work from Hope. And so that's going to all be good, and the preaching will all be sorted out. You'll hear some more of Crescente Bowes. You'll hear some of Timothy. You'll hear some of Tyson. You'll hear some of Scott. So that'll be awesome. Now, if how many of you have read a book in your life? Okay, good. Chloe didn't raise her hand. Neither did... Pardon? Comics do not count. But many of you could tell me what story the opening line that I'm about to say is from. Because they're kind of epic, aren't they? Opening lines to books and movies. For instance, what is this one, okay? A long time ago... In a galaxy far, far away. Star Wars, okay. Shrek. Shrek. And Shrek. It does also do that. Opening line, right? And then maybe for some of the other kind of more nerdy. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley, a number of four. Oh, Jono, you've exposed yourself. As a nerd, as a nerd. What, how does it go? The rest of it. Yes? Yes? They were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. Harry Potter, opening line. Anybody else remember that? Preach it. <laughs> what? What's going on? This, this one... This one's a little bit easier. A, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. What's that from? The hobbit. The, hobbit. the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy. It was the best of times. 
Tell the two cities. Charles Dickens. So opening lines, authors do that for a very specific and purposeful reason. It sets the tone for the rest of the story. And likewise, for you to understand it, you have to understand it's written in this context. In a galaxy far, far away. And these people. And so all these opening lines that are epic are purposeful. And likewise, the Bible begins with the most epic lines ever. And what are they? In the beginning, God. You can't get much more epic than that. And in the same way that all authors and stories have these opening lines that set the tone, the Bible sets the tone for the rest of the story of Genesis, but also for the rest of the story of the Bible. In some way, as we begin our study of Genesis this morning, Genesis is the glasses from which we put on and see the rest of the biblical story. And if you've ever tried to read the Bible, you may have started in Genesis and quit by like Genesis 2 or maybe Genesis 10 by the time you got to the Table of Nations and you thought, what's all this genealogy? But Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, are so important for us to really understand the rest of the Bible story. And I pray that as we start this and continue this for however long it takes, it's 50 chapters, it won't be finished soon, but that, that you really start to understand the story of God in a more deep and more meaningful way. Let's pray together and then we're going to start with those epic words in chapter 1. God, we are truly humbled to come before you, the great creator of all the cosmos, and as, as we read these words, I pray that we, we cannot really bring our modern day minds, but what the ancients would have heard when they heard this and, and really let it spring to life so that we can understand you in a new way and that our, our faith can deepen. And if we're not yet convinced that you are the creator, that these words will really open our minds and start to at least prompt us to investigate this and help us to really see what's the meaning behind everything. And I pray, God, that your spirit really moves in our hearts and minds and brings it all together for us to understand. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. First Corinthians is done. Bring on Genesis and Second Corinthians. We did first and second Corinthians, didn't we? Genesis chapter one, verse one. We're going to read till chapter two, verse three, I believe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And look, I've been studying and pondering this for a bit. Heaven and earth are counterparts. We often think of fill in the blank, heaven and hell. But in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and these are the counterparts that are supposed to be married to each other. Heaven and earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face, surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. In the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And there's some interesting theories about why evening is first instead of, because we typically think it's morning, we wake up and it's morning. But in this sense, there's evening, and then there's morning, and then the first day. It continues, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. Water from water? Move the water. Talking heads? No? Okay. <laughs> So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. 
God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered waters, seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. That's wild in itself. God in his creative power and capacity is giving seeds and vegetation with the ability to continue creating and reproducing. Seed bearing means it can carry on. So in his creative power, he's already setting things in motion. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let there be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and then moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas. And let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. Again, with the power to keep on creating and producing. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kind. The livestock, interesting that the land is where it comes from in this sense, whether that's literal or metaphorical, that's where it comes from. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us... Make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in his own image, completely different from everything created up until this point, in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I always quote this to Millie, my dog in the house. I rule over you, Millie. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground. Everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every greed plant for food. And it was so. 
God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And of course, probably said this before, but there's a contrast, the repeated frame. It was good, it was good, it was good. And in here, verse 31, it's very good, because everything is working together, interconnected, dependent and reliant on each other. And therefore, it's very good, this sense of interconnectivity. What verse are we on? 31. And it was so. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. And does it continue on? That's it. So here's the context of Genesis. So it, this, is, this is awesome, okay? The first 11 chapters really target just everybody. The whole humanity and the whole cosmos that God creates. It's just wide in its scope. Genesis 1 through 11. And then by the time we get to chapter 12, all the way to 50, it talks about Abraham and the family of Abraham that continues on. As we study Genesis, especially, especially chapter 1, we're not going to answer all of your questions. All right. The reason why is because when people in the Old Testament heard this, they weren't asking the same questions we were asking. And as an important rule of Bible study, we try to figure out what they heard before we try to figure out what we hear. That's a good principle of Bible study. So, for instance, we're not going to concern ourselves too much with what is this vault in the sky? What is all that about? It's an interesting question, and please study it out, and I'm sure you have some thoughts on it, but we're not going to necessarily answer that. And if you're hoping we're going to figure out today if the, old is, the earth is old or it's young, we're not going to figure that out either, because they weren't thinking when they heard this, I wonder how old the earth is. We're not going to wonder where the dinosaurs fit in. Because everybody wants to know where the dinosaurs fit in. But when they heard this, they were like, but, but where are the dinosaurs? Those are our questions, not theirs. They didn't think, well, what's, what's the story with the cavemen? How's all that work? And that's our question, not theirs. And so, again, if, if we're going to really understand Genesis, we have to time travel a little bit back into time, into the ancient Near Eastern time period with the Sumerians and how they thought, and Israel and how they thought, and Egypt and Persia, and, and see what they were thinking to understand a little bit about Genesis chapter 1. All right? So just as a qualifier, we're not really going to learn about all of that, although we can have conversations in the fellowship. Today, we're just going to talk about two very important things. That God is the creator and that he is the sustainer. God is the creator and he's also the sustainer. Now again, Genesis 1 tells us many, many things. And we can study those out for an entire year. But one thing is crystal clear. God is creator. And that word shows up in the very first sentence of the Bible. Verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew, it's the word Barah. And it shows up again in verse 21, verse 27, and in chapter 2, verse 3. This is a very important word for us to understand. When they heard that, they thought it was something was brought into it existence and received a function. Not just here's something that has no purpose, but here's something and it has a specific 
purpose. That's barad. So when they hear that word, that's what's going on. All in, all in those verses, 121, 127, in chapter 2, verse 3. And overall, the overall flavor of chapter 1 is God is bringing things into existence and giving them a function. And giving them a purpose. And everything results from God doing that in chapter 1. And then it gets specific. You know, the first three days say that, you know, it's kind of, if you look at it, the first three days are basically time, weather, and food. And all of those serve important functions. And so when God creates everything from the beginning, he does it. And then he says, I want you to serve the function of time. And you're going to be the weather, the vaults in the sky, and the seed bearing plants and the tree. That's food. Those are fundamental to our existence, aren't they? Time, weather, and food. It's essential for life. In verses 14 through 16, let the lights do this. Let them have this function of separating the day from the night. So it's everything. Barah is something that not just... For no reason. It has a very specific purpose. And then in verse 26, as God has finished creating everything, and then he places mankind in the, in the garden, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So this time, your function is to be an image of me. You're to reflect me. So all throughout this chapter, we see God creating and assigning something that has a function. And, and the reason this is such a big deal is when we read, which I've been doing this last week, kind of ancient Near Eastern literature to figure out how they thought, you see, it's vastly different than what God was trying to do. All right, so when, when we start to look at creation epics that mirror the Genesis account, you get something like Enumu Elish, which is the Babylonian creation epic. And in this case, when they create, the god Marduk creates everything, and then he says, I will bring together blood to form bone. I will bring into being Lulu, whose name shall be man. That's a funny name there. I will create Lulu man on whom the toil of the gods will be laid that they may rest. Essentially, in other create, and this is, this is mirrored in other creation epics, the gods say, we're tired of doing work. We need someone to do it for us. They need to do our chores. And in this epic, they have to kill one of the gods to create man. And so when Israel, and, and believe me, this is, the, this is the time period they were growing up in, an ancient Israelite, and they, these other creation epics were surrounding them. And then they hear this and they say, God didn't create us just to be, our, to be chore workers, but he created us to be image bearers. It's a vastly different concept. Think about this, because everything created has a specific purpose, right? And when it goes off course, it can get bad. You know who that is, right? That's Mark Zuckerberg. And so when was Facebook created? Anybody know? 2004. Close. Face Mash, his previous thing, was 2003. That kind of shut down. And then he formed Facebook in 2004. And they interviewed him. This is one of his quotes. He was going to Harvard. And he said, there was, on the internet, you could find all kinds of services. You could find things for music. You could find things for movies. You could find information. But there was no way to connect people. And so at Harvard, what he did is he just basically created this Facebook that said, hey, do you have the same major as I? Are you studying the same thing? Let's connect. That was the essence and the beginning of Facebook. It was to connect with people. 
That's the purpose. That's the function that he assigned for Facebook. However, if you've you know, followed the news in the last couple of years, Facebook has fallen into the wrong hands. And you know, people use it for data breaches and all kind of nonsense, right? In 2000, earlier this year, they were fined $5 billion. How do you even get fined that much? How do you even come up with that much? But they were fined $5 billion because they were allowing this company, Cambridge Analytica, to use data without our consent, and then use it to serve political purposes. All right? Now, that may all sound like weird conspiracy theory, but that's what happened, all right? Now, the original design of Facebook was to say, hey, who lives in Auckland? Who, who, who lives in Chile? Oh, eh, amen. Bueno. Facebook. It's a connecting thing. That was the design. That was the purpose. But eventually, it starts to leave its intended purpose. And you've seen all these movies, right? I always laugh when they, when they develop something and say, if this falls into the wrong hands, right? It's like a stock phrase when they, when they create something or build something, implying that we've designed this really good thing. But if it falls into the wrong hands, they'll use it for another purpose. Now, here's the deal. With God as creator, everything is created for a very fine-tuned, specific purpose, And when we try to leave that purpose, we try to vary the course, it turns into big trouble. It turns into big trouble. So this, you may think, what's what's the big deal about Genesis 1? It's a big deal because it's establishing, why are we here? What's our purpose? It's to be in alignment with God, to be an image bearer. And so there's there's a lot of modern day applications from Genesis chapter 1. First of all, if God created all this, which the Bible convincingly does argue, then you fast forward and you think when Jesus comes on the scene, because some people say, well, how did Jesus get born of a virgin? That just doesn't make sense. Hey, look, if God created the entire cosmos, think about all the complex systems. Virgin birth, not a big deal. You know what I mean? How did Jesus perform these miracles? If God created this cosmic we don't even know what's out there. We don't even know how all it works. You know, we got to get these big telescopes. And if God created all these finely tuned things, a miracle? Come on. That's nothing. That, that's one concept. But, but, but even more important to our life, everybody is searching for a purpose. When I was young in my teens, much to my demise, I tried to find my purpose in whether people thought about me. You know, you go to school and you see, what is that hairstyle? Let me try to, let me try to get that hairstyle. Let me try to be like Fadi. <laughs> hey, I had hairstyles like that. Not as cool as that, but almost as cool. But let me try to get that. Let me, let me try to find my purpose. Hey, they, they're wearing something kind of cool. Their tennis shoes look cool. Let me mirror that. Let me mimic that. And if you're young, you can definitely relate to this. You're trying to find your purpose in what other people think. And then at some point you find this, this is, this is actually ridiculous. I look crazy. You know, and, and, but, but as you start to age, you, you're still trying to find your purpose. And as you age, now you start to interact with your parents and you start to become, you know, you try to become a little bit more independent and you think, hey, well, I, I want to be my own man. I want to be my own woman. And you're still trying to find your purpose, but there's conflict. And, but all throughout this, you're trying to find who am I? 
And what am I supposed to do? And then if you enter university, that's where it gets just really strange. You know, because if you go, if, I, I encourage you to go take a, a day off, an, a lunch break, and go ask people at university, what's the meaning of life? Man, it, it's, get ready. <laughs> Flat out, get ready. All right, because they have all these wild opinions. You know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. What's the meaning of life? 42. What in the world does that even mean? You know, but all these people have these, these bizarre notions of what is our purpose. And then as they kind of settle down and get out of uni, then it, then it becomes like, let me find my purpose in my career, my reputation, relationships. Let me try to preserve myself. Let me try to enter into a good cause. Let me try to find a good thing to rally around. All those are okay. But when we start looking for purposes other than what we're designed for, it's never, ever going to work. It's not going to work. And, and you see this over the centuries. At one point, humanity thought, hey, everything did come from God. And as, as, as time went on, they start to get enlightened in their thinking and they think, no, maybe we can use our brains to figure it out. We'll put God on the shelf and we'll figure things out on our own. And as a result of this, I mean, you can look out of, that's, that's like extremely arrogant for the creature to say, hey, I'm going to put you on the shelf. I'll figure things out on my own now. And you can read the stats and the researches. The identity crisis is like escalating at an alarming rate. Why? Because people aren't rooted in their purpose with God. This is where it all starts and it all begins. If you're having an identity crisis, here is the solution. You're an image bearer of God. You don't have to try hard. You don't have to earn your reputation. You've already been given a very fine-tuned purpose. It's also encouraging because this says, hey, there is a purpose, there is a meaning. The atheistic view says we all came out of nowhere and we all just die in the end. That's like abysmally dark and discouraging. The Bible says God is the creator and he has given us purpose. That gives us peace. That gives us security. That gives us confidence. We've all been given this unique ability to interact with the creator. And that's our purpose. And when we understand that, even simple things like reading the Bible becomes kind of like looking for buried treasure. Man, let me read what the Bible really has to say about who God is and who I am. And let me study this out. God is the absolute, undisputed creator. Before we move to point two, last thing in these, in these other literature from the ancient Near East is there's this colony of gods that they kind of have discussion and they kind of have rumblings. And then one says, I'll create this. And one says, I'll create that. But in the Bible, it's just undisputed God, I'll create. I reign supreme and I'm sovereign. There's a sovereign creator that's given each of us our individual purpose. And if we return to that, it provides a lot of peace and a lot of security. God is also the sustainer. In chapter 2, after everything's created and finished, thus, verse 1 in chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work and creating he had done. So at, at the end of the creation account, before it transitions into chapter 2 and provides an, another view on the creation, the seventh day we get God resting. And it, it shows up a couple times in, in this little segment in verse 2. 
so on the seventh day he rested. And then it says it again in verse 3. And that's, that's the word Shabbat. That's where we get the word Sabbath. Or El Sabado in Espanol. Muy buena. My Spanish is flowing this morning. Isn't that right, Alex? But Shabbat, Sabbath, that's, that's where they get this. That's where the word comes from. Right here in Genesis chapter 1. Now normally when you hear and it, it means resting. But it's not resting like we think of resting. Because when you hear the word rest, what do you think of? I'm going to fly take a nap. I'm going to go to sleep. That's not what Shabbat means. That means, all right, I'll see you later. I'm going to go Shabbat. <laughs> I'm going to fall asleep. That, that's not what that means. In, in this, when they heard it, it meant you ceased from activity. And then you transitioned into a different, into a different activity. So you stop working... And then you enter into what's kind of a rest. For instance, in Joshua chapter 5, verse 12, this is where you see the same word. Joshua chapter 5, verse 12, the manna Shabbat stopped. It's translated Shabbat in your NIV, but it's the manna Shabbat the day. And after, and after that, they ate food from the land. So it's not like the manna took a nap. It just stopped, it ceased, and now they enter into another period where they start eating off the land. Does all that follow so far? So it's not like God said, six days, I'm tired, let me take a nap, let me just relax and kick back a little bit. It's like everything is done that needs to be done. I'm transitioning into a different role. And what we'll eventually see is sustainer. Everything's created, everything's good. Now I'm going to contr- be on the controls and continue to sustain. And so this, if, if you read again, the, the way they thought in this time period was when the gods, not just the God of Israel, but all these ancient religions thought when the God created, he would, when he finished, he would build a temple and he would rest in his temple. And essentially he would kind of control the universe from the temple. You can read, it's really fascinating stuff. I encourage you to read it all. Not for your spiritual edification, but just for your knowledge base. But anyway, for instance, in Samaria, they have this idea. This is Sumerian creation literature. House of Anunu gods, possessing great power, which gives wisdom to the people. Reposeful dwelling. That's, that's kind of a similar idea. Rest. Of the great gods, this temple, this house, he's finished creating, he comes to his temple, and he's going to rest. The house which was planned together with the plans of heaven and earth. So when they hear that God rested, it's not again sleep, it's that he's finished one purpose, and he's transitioning to another. As sustainer. Again, this is another creation epic from Enumu Elish, the, the Babylonian one. We will make a shrine whose name will be a byword. Your chamber that shall be our stopping place. We shall find rest therein. Babylonians, they said Mardu created everything, built a temple. He rests. And then he says to the rest of the gods, hey, come on over to my temple. We'll rest here while we control the universe. So that's the way they thought. When you finished working, you entered rest, but you transitioned into a different type of role. So, in the Bible, Psalm 132 really starts to dig into this idea of God where he he finishes, but then he changes roles. He's done creating and he becomes sustainer. Psalm 132, verse 7 and 8. This is about the temple. Let us go to his dwelling place. In that time period, it's specifically the temple. Let us worship at his footstool saying, arise, Lord, and come to your resting place. 
You and the ark of your might. Later on in verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion, and he has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired. So the, the idea, it's not like this was borrowed from the other ancient eastern religions. But God, they, they, they all thought when my God finished creating, he got in his temple and he started changing roles. But the God of the Bible definitely sustains the entire creation. He is the sustainer. When he, when, and when Genesis 2 says that he rested from his work, it's not like on the eighth day, he's like, I don't know what I need to do now. He's switching roles where he starts to sustain the rest of creation. Prior to day seven, God was creating. Day seven, he takes residence. And he takes over the controls. And you see it throughout the Old Testament. They depend on God for rain. We know rain comes from God. We depend on God for food. We know food comes from God. And so it's really a transition from working to ruling. That's what we see in the Genesis account. It's similar. Like you think about the beehive, right? When is the election for prime minister? Next year? Next year. Who's running? Dalton, you running? You got your glasses on this morning. You look like you'd run for prime minister. Up until the point where they get elected, there's a lot of hard work. They're campaigning. They're trying to persuade. They're trying to get your vote. There's a lot of... They're doing lots and lots of hard work just to get into the beehive. But when they get into the beehive, the prime minister doesn't then say, it's all good, it's all done and dusted, let me kick back in my chair and relax, I'm done. That's when he starts to rule, in some sense. That's when he gets his hands, him or her gets their hands on the controls, says now, okay, I'm transitioning, I've done a lot of hard work, now I've got to transition into a different role of ruling. And so that, that's, that's the same thing, when God starts to create, I'm done creating, now I'm going to continue to sustain the entire universe. I'm taking control of the cosmos. This is wildly cool if you think about it because this really does have a lot of application. It's not like, like many think God winded up the clock and then left it running and says, good luck. That's not what happened. The people of Israel grappled with this because they said, okay, we, we understand now God is the creator and he's sustain, sustainer. But now when they get exiled into Babylon and they're there, they're thinking, where are you, God? How come you're not sustaining? How come you're not taking care of us anymore? And what's, what's interesting is Isaiah the prophet from chapters 40 to chapters 55. You know what his main message is? God is the creator and sustainer. He's calling them back to Genesis and saying, look, God created all these things. And he told you that if you didn't listen, you'd go into exile. But he also promised you that if you listen, he'll bring you out. He's still behind the controls. He's still in the seat of sovereignty. He's working behind the scenes. He's still sustaining. That's what's happening. And it's evident if you look through Israel's history, it's evident that God is reaching into history at certain points, sustaining the nation of Israel. It's evident when you look into the life of Jesus, because they're like, where's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? Jesus comes in on the, comes in on the scene. God's still sustaining you look at the early church and they're having trouble and persecutions, but God's still sustaining. And like, well, it's the same thing today, right? It's not like all of a sudden he just let go of the controls. God is still sustaining. Now, why does this make sense? Well, how many of you are fearful? 
How many of you worry? How many of you have anxiety? Now, all that, all that is, it's not, this, this is not meant to be an open, when I say that, that's not meant to be an oversimplification. But what I am saying is that there's a root of when you're worried, when you're fearful, or when you're anxious, you're looking at something that may or may not happen in the future, and you get kind of worked up about it. But the reality is we can't control much anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like you can control whether or not the sun shines or doesn't shine. And so all this fear, all this worry, and the anxiety is in, is in part, is like, let me just let God sustain. Let me let him do his role. Let me try to take off controls, and let me let God do his thing. Because I can't really control it anyway. And as a result, sometimes we just get too paralyzed about what we're trying to do or what we're afraid to do. But let God sustain. He's the one that on the controls anyway. And this isn't true in every case, but for the most part, there is a bit of this... I'm not sure God's in control when there's worry, there's fear, there's anxiety. Not always true, but again, there's something to that. If you believe that God is the creator and God is the sustainer, it gives you a sense of peace. And it gives you a sense of security. And it gives you a sense of confidence. Also, it's meant to help us understand that on the Sabbath, we need to take our hands off the controls and say, hey, let God do his thing. Recently, I've been thinking about that a lot and trying to take Mondays off where I, because I'm just wired to let me, let me make this appointment, let me do this, let me do that. But you know, even when I'm not making appointments and I'm not in appointments, God is still working. Same with you. But I feel this need, if I'm not involved, then what's going to happen? But let me just rest. Because God's on the controls as the great sustainer. I think it's something healthy for us all to think about. There needs to be a day where you just sit and reflect and think, hey, God's got everything under control. Finances, marriage dynamic, kids, job, you name it. You stress about it, you're worried about it, you're anxious about it. Take a Sabbath and say, let me just let God run the, let me let God run the universe. And let me stop trying to. Because God is the great sustainer. God is more interested in our character than our production. And we come to understand that when we take rest and imitate our God. As we conclude Genesis chapter 1 this morning, we're not trying to answer all the questions. Because those are not their questions. Those are our questions. But prayerfully, we could all understand that God is the creator. And as such, that's where you find your purpose. That's where I find my purpose. And that's where we find our purpose. And God is also the great sustainer. He keeps everything going. And it's essential for us to keep that truth in mind in the Central Auckland Church of Christ as we let God run the cosmos. Amen.